Heavenly Father, I pray in Jesus' name that you'll move on this listener right now in your gentle, loving, powerful, and merciful way as they listen to this message from All Nations Church in Tallahassee. Amen. This morning, I'm going to take you to the book of Nehemiah, chapter 4, and I'll tell you where, where this message came from. This Christmas, uh, we were all gathered together with our family in Oklahoma. We were meeting at my older brother's house there in, in Broken Arrow near the Tulsa area, and we took a trip over to, uh, over to El Reno, which is on the other side of Oklahoma City. We were going to go bird hunting. So the first picture, if you guys would go back to the other one, go back to the first picture there. It's a picture of all of the guys of our family. Uh, we're all hunting together. Um, it'll pop up there in a minute, I'm sure. There we go, all the guys. We invited the girls to go with us, but for some reason they didn't want to go chase around birds in the cold. So we got all the guys out there. I want to draw your attention to just two of those, though. That's, that's all of uh, the nephews and, and my brothers and brother-in-law and all that stuff. All that. I want to draw your attention to two of them. The first one I want you to notice is right beside my dad. That's my older brother, Chris, uh, who's about six foot five. And the other one I want to draw your attention to is sitting in the very front of the picture in the blue shirt. That's Spencer. He's the youngest uh, of the, all the cousins, the youngest nephew, and he's about four foot six. I verified it. I called him. I said, Spencer, how are you? He, how, how tall are you? He said, I'm four foot six. There's a reason I want, to, I want you to know those two measurements. Chris is six foot five. Spencer is four foot six. Because this next picture, it's kind of grainy. Go and throw that next picture up there for me. The next picture you'll see is actually Chris is there in the middle with a shotgun. He's about to shoot a bird. And do you see that little orange blob laying on the ground in front of him? That's Spencer. That's the youngest one. What had happened is that my, my brother Chris had told Spencer, he said, hey, you're going to walk with me. We're going to hunt together. But when a bird comes up, just be careful because I'm going to shoot. And I had a blast watching them. Because what would happen is every time a bird would come up, I think Spencer was convinced that shotgun was swinging straight for his head because he would lay on the ground as flat as he could. And I kept looking at him and I was like, what a little boy, you're like a solid two feet shorter than him. That gun is going way, it's not even coming close to you. But I mean, he was vigilant about it. He was going to be on the ground every time. And I'll tell you why I want to take you to Nehemiah chapter 4 today, because as I was watching that scene happen over and over again, and even though every time Chris swung his gun, he wasn't even close to Spencer's head, Spencer was still vigilant that something bad could have happened to him. In Nehemiah chapter 4, there's a tremendous occasion that's happening where the people of Jerusalem have been brought back. They've been in captivity for a long time, and they've been brought back to Jerusalem at this point. In the middle of celebration, in the middle of rebuilding, in the middle of all the good things, Nehemiah is constantly reminding them to be vigilant. He's constantly reminding them that even on your highest day, on the moments when things look as though they're going really well, you need to be aware that there is a real enemy of your soul who desires to take you out. So he encourages them over and over again to be vigilant. What Nehemiah's story really is all about, and I would challenge you at some point, go back and read the whole book of Nehemiah. What the story is really all about is it's about God's faithfulness in the middle of our fear, in the middle of our celebration, in the middle of our worship. I titled my message for you this morning, I titled it, Run to the Trumpet. And you're going to see why I've called it that when we get to the third point that I'm going to get to today. Nehemiah is a man who led the people through transition, through refocusing, and through growth. But throughout all of that time, he was constantly reminding the people that you're going to have to be responsible for your own spiritual household. In fact, in Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 10, I, I love it. I didn't put it on here for the screen for you guys. Once again, I challenge you to go get it. 
Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 10, there's a story where they're going through what each man was, was tasked with rebuilding on the walls around Jerusalem. And it says that one particular man, it says he rebuilt the walls opposite of his house. And every time I come across that one verse right there, I'm reminded, you know what? It's not my job to protect the entire world. It's my job to rebuild the wall directly in front of my house. That my household is who I'm responsible for. As a pastor, you're responsible for a church, for the spiritual household. So rebuild the wall in front of your house and then watch God do what only God can do. The main lesson I have for you this morning is that attacks don't come at opportune moments. In fact, he's going to come when you least expect him to come. Let me take you to Nehemiah chapter 4 this morning, beginning in verses 13 and 14. says this, Therefore I, meaning Nehemiah, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, Don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome, and fight for your families, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. I want you to picture exactly what's happening here in Nehemiah chapter 4. The construction has begun, and, and each man is going out, and each family is going out, and they're repairing the wall that's in front of their house or repairing a certain specific part of the wall. But now Nehemiah says, hey, there's a real enemy who's coming, and I don't want you to be afraid. I want you to know that God is with you. But the fact that there's holes in the wall means that we really have to be vigilant here. So he places men inside of the walls as human bricks. Until the bricks can be put in place, the men have to serve as the bricks. The men have to stand in the holes with their swords and their spears and their bows, and they have to wait and just see what's about to happen. But here's the key. They weren't just supposed to stand there for the sake of standing there. It wasn't their New Year's resolution to stand up for 14 hours a day and make sure that I'm as fit as I can be. They were there for a purpose. They were there to protect their families. They were there to protect those that they loved. See, I think that sometimes we get lost in the fact that when God gives us purpose, when God gives us direction, it's not just for the sake of obedience. It's not just so we can say, well, check mark, I did exactly what God has called me to do. It's for the good of those who are around us. It's for the good of the people who are going to serve beside us, those who are going to link arms with us, those who are going to walk into battle with us. In Nehemiah chapter 4, Nehemiah reminds the people that they serve a God who is able to save them. But our job is to stand in the middle of the gaps and serve on behalf of those who we're serving with. I was reading a, a study recently. It actually, it's an old study. It's out of the New York Times in 1989. It's called the Ganges River Experiment. In 1989, they were having a problem. Actually, much earlier than that, they were having a problem. And what was happening is that in this certain area between India and Bangladesh, the loggers who would go into the mangrove forests to fish or to log or, or to do whatever had to do, in this particular area of the country, no one lives there. And what was happening is that the tigers had become so aggressive and so angry that they were killing loggers all the time. They were trying to figure out what to do. How do we solve this problem? They knew they needed to log there. They needed to get the fishing done. The, the commerce had to take place. And these men were going to continue going into there to, to do their job. So the government was trying to figure out what do we do. And someone had a really strange idea. They decided that what they were going to do was try to build a, a human-type scarecrow, and they put, uh, they put clothes on it, and they put electricity inside of the scarecrow that when the, when the tiger would attack it, it would shock the tiger. And the stories are that the tigers would attack it, and they would hear the screams from outside the forest of the tigers attacking it. It was working. 
So they sent the loggers back in, and unfortunately, that just made the tigers even more mad, and they attacked even more loggers. So they said, well, we got to do something else. And so they came up with different violent answers. And over time, they couldn't quite figure out what was going to happen. So in 1989, the New York Times writes a story about what they did. Instead of trying to attack the tigers, they gave each logger a cheap rubber mask. It was a white face with a mustache on it. They gave him a mask, and they said, tie this mask to the back of your head. See, someone had figured out that tigers only like to attack at opportune moments when you're not paying attention. And so they tied a mask to the back of their head, and what happened is that the tiger attacks went almost to zero. In fact, in the year that they did this study, there were only three loggers who were attacked in the Ganges River time, in the mangroves during that time. One of them was he had stopped for lunch and was a little bit hot, so he took his mask off so that he could eat his lunch. He was attacked and killed. The other two were fishermen that had forgot their masks that day. They pulled into, uh, not even to the bank yet, they were on their way to the bank, and a tiger came out of the forest and attacked them and killed them in their boat. Out of an entire year, hundreds of people had been being killed by these tigers, but in a certain year, only three people were killed, and there were three people that didn't wear the mask the way they were supposed to. And I think there's a lesson here. The lesson is pretty simple. The enemy of your soul desires to attack you at opportune moments. He desires to attack you when you're not paying attention. He desires to get you when you think you're safe, when you think everything is good, when you're settled down and say, I've survived this long, surely I'm going to survive even longer. And what happened is that when these men all together, when the loggers would go into the mangrove forest, what would, what would occur is that if all of them wore their masks together, they would all be protected together. So they weren't just there to protect themselves. They were there to protect the guy who was working beside them. They were there to protect the one who was serving on the other side of the tree from them. Together, they protected one another, and they guaranteed a future for the people of their area. I want you to notice out of Nehemiah chapter 4 that the gospel is not just for this generation. Look at what Nehemiah says. He says, I want you to fight for your families, for your sons and your daughters, for your wives and your homes. When we get in our minds that the gospel is only for this generation, and if I can make it to heaven by the skin of my teeth and I've done good enough, can I challenge you that you have an incomplete view of the gospel? That the gospel is not just for the people sitting in this room today. The gospel is for your children and for your grandchildren and for every person who's going to come after you, for every person that's going to sit in a chair of a church and say, I need the truth of the gospel. Fight for your sons and daughters. Fight for your homes and your wives. It's an active thing that Nehemiah tells them. Go and stand up. Go and do something about it. Fight for those around you. See, the truth is that each generation builds upon whatever the last generation has built. We don't get the wall growing taller if the first group doesn't build the wall to begin with. Now, if we're honest with each other, there have been moments in each one of our stories where Perhaps we've had gaps inside of our walls. There's been moments where we've failed. There have been moments where we've messed up. There's been moments where things haven't gone exactly how we think God should have it to go. There have been moments when things have fallen apart. And can I encourage you that when your wall is in ruins, there has to be something that you choose to do. It has to be an active decision. You can't just sit back and say, I hope one day that someone goes and fixes that wall. It doesn't require us as Christians to step up and say that we have a calling, we have a purpose, we have a reason for running into the gaps in the wall. 
And the reason comes out of the next verse, Nehemiah chapter 4, verse, 4, verse 15. It says this, When our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to our own work. When the enemy saw that these men were prepared, that they were now going into their construction jobs with spears and swords and bows, and they were standing in the middle of the gap, when that occurred, then they were able to get back to the work that they were able to do. Now, there's a, an understood part of this verse right here, and I want you to catch it. It's that the enemy didn't stop plotting just because the people were prepared. He just retreated for a little while. It didn't mean they defeated the enemy. It just meant the enemy wasn't going to come today. And I think sometimes in modern Christianity, we look at how good our lives are today. We say, look how blessed I am. I'm too blessed to be stressed. Everything is working out for me, and I, everything's on the up and up. Can I tell you something? That just because you're too blessed today doesn't mean that the enemy of your soul isn't plotting against you for tomorrow. The enemy is waiting on them to slip. The enemy is waiting on those who are going to go and work on the walls around Jerusalem to not come with their bows and arrows and slings and shields. He's waiting on the moment when they lay down their, their vigilance and they do it wrong just one time and then the enemy is going to slip in and he's going to start to destroy things. But here's the kicker. The kicker is that this wasn't just a good guess from Nehemiah. It wasn't just good leadership from Nehemiah to tell the people that they need to prepare. God had spoken to Nehemiah that this was the way that they were to go. Can I tell you that sometimes we give credit to our imaginations, our luck, and our ingenuity when really it is God speaking to us and telling us that we need to go and do new things. See, when we become an obedient people, God becomes an active God inside of our lives. And each time that God spoke to them, and each time God proved himself right, I would say that their faith grew just a little bit more. Each time God told them, okay, I want you to leave captivity, and now I want you to go and, and to, back into Jerusalem. It became true that, yeah, that's really what God wants. Our faith has grown a little bit. Then he tells them, I don't just want you to go to Jerusalem, but I want you to repair the walls while you're there. And they started to see that, hey, the work is a little bit better than we thought it was going to be, and it's going a little faster, and our faith grew a little bit more. God says, there's an enemy who's going to come and attack you. And they go and stand inside the gaps. And there are the human bricks who are standing there. And while they're standing there, they see the enemy on the horizon. And their faith grows a little bit more because the enemy flees from them. See, what God was doing is he's teaching the people of Jerusalem that if you will trust my voice, I've got you in my hand. If you'll trust that the next thing is better than the last thing, then I promise you I'm going to get you to the next thing. It would have been really easy for them to say, well, God brought us this far. Surely this is as far as God's going to go. We're done. We're happy. We're good. We got 89% we got of the vision, and that's all we need. We're fulfilled. No, but God wanted more for them. So he kept speaking to the leaders. He kept speaking to them, and every time that God was right, their faith grew a little bit more. I'm reminded of, of something that happens in our family. Your pastors are... Very nice grandparents. In fact, I think they spoil their grandkids. Um, just coming from a parent, they would never treat me the way that they treat their grandkids. <laughs> but my kids, I have two boys who are 11 and 12 years old, and their favorite words that come out of Pops' mouth is when he says, let's go to the gas station. Now, for you, I can hear some giggling. You guys are kind of like, what? Go to the gas station? What's that all about? Let me tell you about going to the gas station with my dad. 
When I was a kid and we would go to the gas station, you know what I was told? You don't need candy. You're fine. <laughs> Dad, we've been on the road for like 12 hours. It doesn't matter. You're not hungry. Go sit down. <laughs> go to the bathroom. Get back in the car. But when he shows up to my kids, he tells them, let's go to the gas station. And when they were little, they're 11 and 12 now. When they were little, about three and four years old, he'd take them to the gas station and he'd tell them, you can get whatever you want inside the gas station. <laughs> this is paradise. Buy whatever you want. And they'd come home with like a Slurpee and, and a Snickers bar. They'd be like, Dad, Pops, let us buy this. And I'm like, that's amazing. Congratulations. That's awesome. Good for you. Thank you for making me stay up late with my children tonight. <laughs> they got to be a little bit older, and, and he would tell them, he'd walk them back into the gas station, you know, seven, eight years old. They'd walk into the gas station, and he'd buy whatever you want. You can get whatever you want. And they'd go in, and this time they'd come back with like a bag of chips, two candy bars, and a a 20-ounce Coca-Cola. They'd come back with their own little plastic bags and be, Dad, look what Pops let us buy. And I'm like, thank you, Pops, so much. Thank you, that's going to be a blast. This year, he took them. All the grandkids are getting older. He took them and he said, you can buy whatever you want at the gas station. I promise you that my children walk through the door with grocery bags that were completely full of stuff. I thought... That was like all the snacks for all of them. My youngest one walks through, Mason, he walks through the door with his grocery bag. Then Tyler, my, my oldest one, he walks through with his grocery bag. And then the older nephews walk through with their grocery bags. And then I don't remember who it was, but someone walked in behind them and they had the biggest drinks I've ever seen in my life. I don't even think they were cups, I think they were buckets. He gave them buckets of Coca-Cola and root beer. Those kids walked in and they said, Dad, look what Pops bought for us. I kind of laugh at it. I look at it now and I realize that what was happening is that from the time they were little, he's been training them that Pops is good for it. That every time I tell you go to the gas station, you can get a little bit more. You can go a little bit further. Trust me, a little bit more. Your dad can't spank you if I'm the one who bought it for you. <laughs> And I think it's a lesson that God is trying to teach the people of Jerusalem in this passage in Nehemiah chapter 4. That though the enemy may be plotting against you, every time you trust me, I'm going to get you a little bit further. Every time you trust me, I'm going to walk you one step closer to the kingdom. The walls are going to get built up just a little bit more. The kingdom's going to grow a little bit stronger. God is showing himself faithful inside of all nations, church. And the question is, will you continue trusting him or will you say, Okay, we've had enough. We trusted him to hear, and that's, we're good. We're happy, we're good, leave us alone. I don't want you to miss that this is a historical narrative in Nehemiah chapter 4. It's not an allegory, it's not some funny fable tale story that we tell to our kids. This is a true, active story that occurred some couple thousand years ago. But I want to clarify something to you. There's a lesson that's held inside of this, and I don't want to get too far away from the fact that this is a real story, but I do want you to hear me say this, that when you seek God-sized things, there's going to be a devil-sized enemy. I think sometimes we pray God-sized prayers expecting a little tiny enemy of our souls. Expecting very little problems to come along, very little issues, and things are just going to be easy. And we say, well, God, if I'm in your will, then everything should be smooth sailing. Why is my life falling apart? Oh, no, it must mean that I'm outside of God's will. Let me go. Give no, no, no. Sometimes you're in God's will, and there's still a devil-sized enemy who's aiming for you. 
The devil's greatest trick is to allow us to slide back into, uh, into just incompetence and in relaxation and in laziness and allowing us to take ourselves out of a fight. But when you seek to do God-sized things, there's going to be a devil-sized enemy. But I have good news for you. It's not a fair fight. Amen. A God-sized dream will always beat a, de a devil-sized enemy. A God-sized dream is always going to win if we can be obedient, if we can be faithful, if we can continue to show up. Now we come to the point of my message today. Nehemiah chapter 16, or chapter 4, verses 16 through 20 says this. From that day on, half my men did the work, while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other. And each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. But the man who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. Catch this. You ready for this? Verse 19. Then I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, The work is extensive and spread out, and we are widely separated from each other along the wall. Whenever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. Our God will fight for us. I want you to catch the historical thing that's happening here. They said, the work is so big, we're going to have to spread out. We can't pretend like we're an army in a perfect formation and stay like that all day, every day. Instead, we're going to have to spread out. We're going to have to get a little bit away from each other. And you're going to have to do your work, and I'm going to have to do my work, and you're going to have to do work over here. But there's going to come a day where the enemy is going to attack. So what Nehemiah says is, we can't fight the enemy by ourselves. So when you hear the guy with the trumpet, I want you to run to the trumpet as fast as you can. Why? Because it's easier to stand when you know you're not standing alone. It's easier to stand when you know that someone is coming to get your back. It's easier to stand when you know that you are not the only Christian church in all of northern Florida. It's easier to stand when you understand that you are not the only ones who received a revelation from God in the entire United States. You have received a part of the vision, but when the trumpet sounds, run to the trumpet. Come on. Come on. When the church is under attack, go and attack the devil. Amen. I think sometimes we got to get it in our minds that it's not our job to sit back and say, well, I'm praying that everything goes okay. Sometimes you got to go punch the devil in the mouth. you got to go tell him, not today, Satan. Not today. I heard the trumpet. I'm going to run to where the problem area is. When I was in middle school, I played football for a short period of time, and I can remember running laps over and over again. And the reason that we ran laps was because we didn't understand what it meant to collapse on the ball, collapse to the ball. If you've been watching football this season, especially as the playoffs are going on, you know what it means to collapse on the ball. When a runner has the ball and starts running a certain way, one guy is supposed to get there, and then everyone else on the defense is supposed to collapse on that area and take the guy down. I can remember being in middle school, and our coaches would yell at us, scream at us, call us all kinds of weird names. Say, you're going to run all day if you guys can't figure this out. Collapse on the ball, collapse on the ball, collapse on the ball. I remember them saying that to us over and over again, and I didn't really understand what it meant until one day they told us, they said, when, when this guy catches the runner, you go tackle the runner. Well, then all of a sudden it became clear. That's exactly what my job is. My job is to run wherever the defense needs help and get the guy down on the ground. Can I tell you that the same is true inside of Christianity, inside of your church? 
that sometimes all we're waiting on is one person to be brave enough to tie up the enemy until the rest of us can get there. Someone has to be brave enough to, to take charge and to step in the middle of that gap and know that when the alarm is sound, there are others who are coming behind you. The church of Jesus Christ in the 21st century is hurting because there are those of us who will not step into the gaps. We say, well, that's got to be someone else's job. I'm a builder. I'm a tradesman. I'm here to put the bricks in the wall. I'm not here to hold a sword and to fight. Now, what Nehemiah told him is when you're carrying the bricks, you carry the bricks in one hand, you put your other hand on the sword because every one of us is going to fight this fight. I look at the last 10 years of All Nations Church and I realize that what God is doing inside of here is a reminder that you have been called to stand on behalf of those who can't stand for themselves. Your greatest weapon is prayer. Your greatest weapon is spiritual warfare. It's more than a devotional exercise. It's a calling that each one of us has. But I wonder how many times we take our hands off our weapons because we'd rather do something else. We say, well, I'm really more of of this skill set inside the church. I can't really can't really have my hand on, on the weapon of prayer at this time. i, I got to do the other things. i got to make sure this is taken care of. You know, Don't you know that no one else is looking out for this except for me? Can I pause? This isn't in my notes, but let me just say it real quick. If you haven't trained someone to come behind you who can do the same job that you can do, you haven't done a very good job as a leader. If you're the only plug that fits inside of that wall, then you're a bad leader. <laughs> you got to be training people to come up behind you. It's got to the point where you can run to the trumpet and trust that that hole is still going to be plugged because you've trained someone to be there. We're so worried about, well, i got to do my job. I can't spend time in prayer. i got to do my job, my job, my job, that we've lost the efficacy of prayer. I can tell you that because I can look at the way that we react to prayer requests inside of our lives. I wonder how you react. You're probably one of these three people. Number one, do you react in such a way that you stop immediately and pray when you receive a prayer request? Are you the type of person that you're going to stop on the road and you're just going to, someone says, hey, can you pray for me? And you're in the middle of the gas station. You said, not only can I pray for him, I do it right now. And you grab their hand and you begin to pray for him. Number two, maybe you're the type of person who writes it down for later. Maybe you're an intercessor and you say, well, let me write it down. I'll remember it. I'm going to come back later. I promise I'm praying for you. Update me. Let me know what's going on. Or perhaps you're like person number three who says, I'm praying for you, but you never get back to it. The person who has the appearance of godliness, but lacks the holiness thereof. The person who has their hand on the weapon, but chooses to never draw the weapon. Each one of us needs to collapse in boldness. Collapse to the need, collapse to the problem. Go and fill the hole that you see in front of you. My question for you today is, have you spent time praying for your church? Have you spent time in prayer for your church and for your leaders and for your Sunday school teacher and for the worship team? Have you spent time in prayer for your church? Over my time in ministry, I've planted a lot of different campuses and hired a lot of people to do some different things. And I'm always looking for what's the marker of whether someone's going to be successful at going and running their own church, if they're under my umbrella, how are they going to do it? And I've learned this one thing. I make it a rule that I don't hire people who don't spend time in prayer for their specific campus of the church. I won't do it. I had a couple hires that I I brought someone in, and I said, hey, will you 
lead this part over here? Can you lead this part of the church? And I asked them to do it. And the truth was that they loved the church, but they loved their vision more than they loved the church. They spent a lot of time for God to do things in their life, but they didn't spend a whole lot of time praying for God to do things through the church's life. And it becomes pretty clear within about a year that we've made a mistake and we got to pull back. And so what I've started doing is I ask people, I say, give me your prayer list. How often do you pray? Tell me what you pray about. And I listen. I listen because if all their prayers are, God bless me, God do this for me, God make sure that my kingdom grows. And I don't hear them say, even though I'm leaving a previous ministry, I still pray for that ministry every day. Why? Because if you're praying for things, you're keeping your hands on the weapons. I can boil it all down pretty simple. I think that Nehemiah chapter 4 boils down to this one phrase. Leaders are not made in boardrooms and meetings. They're made in altars and morning devotions. I'm going to invite you musicians to come back if they'll get ready to lead us in worship here in just a moment. You know, when the disciples were with Jesus, they spent years with him. They were with Jesus and they asked him, they said, Jesus, you're so efficient in your prayers. You're so effective in your prayers. Jesus, teach us to pray. Now, you know the passages. Some of us call them the Lord's Prayer. Some of us call them our fathers. Maybe you learned in King James Version, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Whatever version you learned it in, what you did is you learned to pray the way that Jesus prayed. My favorite line in the Lord's Prayer says, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I think that if we understand prayer inside of our lives, if we understand leadership and who God has called each one of us to be, if we understand celebration and vigilance, then our prayer has to be, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As I looked around Tallahassee over the last couple days and look at this wonderful church here today, my prayer for you is pretty simple. God's kingdom come, God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Will you stand with me this morning? I want to pray for you. I started out by telling you that we have to remain vigilant. We have to remain ready. We have to remain paying attention. We got to keep our eyes open at all times. I know today is a day of celebration, but I felt like God drew my attention to Nehemiah chapter 4 today because in the middle of celebration, we still have to remain vigilant. There's still an enemy. There are still lost people in the city who don't know the truth of the gospel. And while it's great to celebrate, we also want to remember that we are standing in the gap for those who can't stand for themselves. I want to pray for the loss of Tallahassee. For the people who are so far away from God, they say, I don't even know if I can get close to God. I want to pray for those that the enemy has already won the battle inside of their hearts. He's convinced them that they're not worthy of a church, that they're not welcome inside of a church. I want to pray for those who are far away from God. But I also want to pray for you. I want to pray that you would remain in the Spirit of God in such a way that when the the spiritual forces attack your heart, your mind, your body, that it's God's victory who's going to win. 
It's God's victory. A couple of years ago, I was going through a moment in, in my life that I was struggling with some things and I was really fighting. And the truth was, there was a certain person that I was really fighting against and it was getting kind of kind of heated between us. One night I went to bed and I was praying and I said, God, I know that you said we're supposed to curse our, or we're supposed to bless our enemies. I wanted to curse my enemy, but I, you say we're supposed to bless our enemies. I'm laying in bed and I said, God, I don't want to bless my enemy. I just don't want to. That's where I'm at. In that moment, God reminded me of a verse that says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against the principalities of darkness. It's easy to think that our enemies are those who are opposed to the gospel. But you don't wrestle against flesh and blood. You wrestle against principalities of darkness. So today I want to pray for more people to come to know the gospel through All Nations Church. I pray for full seats, full altars. Because God is going to do the thing that you've been dreaming about doing. If you're with me this morning, will you begin to pray in whatever way you feel comfortable? Begin to pray against the principalities of darkness. Do some spiritual warfare here for a minute and fight against the darkness. Let's pray together. Lord God, Jesus, we give you all that we have and all that we have brought into this room right now. God, you brought us here for the solemn occasion. We get to celebrate a, a, a milestone anniversary. But Jesus, we always want to keep our eyes on the fact that you always have more to give. So God, we celebrate the last 10 years, but now we, God, we pray for more salvations. We pray for more baptisms in the Holy Spirit. We pray for more water baptisms. We pray for more discipleship. We pray for more parking lot attendance. We pray for more cars in the parking lot. God, we pray for more. Because we're not battling against people. We're battling against darkness. So Lord, in this moment, we cast out the darkness that is in Tallahassee, Florida. No longer is it welcome. No longer can it be a cloud that rests over the city. Instead, God, we proclaim the light of the Son of Jesus has come. The darkness has ended and Christ's reign shall begun on earth as it is in heaven. God, we'll stay vigilant. Not against fellow humans, but we'll stay vigilant against the apathy that was sneaking. We'll stay vigilant against backbiting. We'll stay vigilant against, against anything that you're against, God. Jesus, I pray that in the next few minutes that we spend together, in the next few minutes, God, I pray that you would open up hearts and minds. Remind us of who is far from the gospel that we've written off. Allow us, God, to stand in the gap for them and to run towards the trumpet when it's time for the battle to begin. God, I pray for lost sons and daughters to come home. Pray for lost neighbors to come home. You're such a good God. Such a good God.
God, in your power. We give ourselves over to you. In your grace, we give our hearts to you. In your wonderfulness, we give our worship to you. So God, we yield everything to you in this moment. So that the rest of this day can be given to celebration. We have steeled inside of our hearts. We've put some rocks inside of our guts, God, that we're going to stand up and we're going to fight until the time is right. God, I pray great blessing over your people of All Nations Church. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You made it to the end of the message, and now what? Is God leading you to make a change? Are you needing a good church home where you can grow and help others grow as you fulfill your part in the body of Christ? Then we invite you to join us at All Nations Church on Sharer Road in Tallahassee, a multicultural church founded on the truth of God's Word and the power of the Holy Spirit. Our Sunday morning service is at 10.30 and Wednesday night service at 7, plus youth group and kid power and small groups and more. For more information, visit our website, allnationstallahassee.com.